misses. Brock isn't dead. It's just sleuthing. With your host, Willie Whitebread, and Mark Audio Slave Stewart. Hey motherfuckers, welcome back to another episode of Rock Isn't Dead with me, Willie Whitebread. And, and Mark the Audio Slave. Mark the Audio Slave. Today we are talking about one of the, probably one of the most unknown subjects to most rock and roll fans out there. We're talking about the weird, the different, the songs that make you go, I think I like that, but I don't know. Mm-hmm. Progressive rock and roll. Laughter, cheer. Pro rock. Pro rock, prog rock, proto prog rock, folk prog rock. Metal progressive. Metal progressive. Progressive metal prog rock. That's it. Nailed it. Okay, so where should we start? Let's start where it started. Mm. Shall we? Let's do it. Mid-60s. We're talking about one of the weirdest motherfuckers to ever come out on the scene, a Mr. Frank Zappa. Zappa, not not one of my most uh, revered and favorite musicians. Really, you liked Weasel better? Yeah, you know, no, actually, I like Amet better or Moon Unit. Moon yeah. <laughs> Moon Unit. I like her actually much better than than Frank. Yeah. Uh, so Frank Zappa, uh, born in 1940, Baltimore, Maryland. So he was a U.S. guy. He, uh, you know, because throughout time, there's always been a semi proto battle between English musicians and. U.S. musicians, yeah, um, and so born out of the blues in the '40s and '50s, you know, we've got Elvis coming along, and so a scene came along. Uh, it started in the mid '60s as well, maybe a little bit early, definitely a little bit earlier than prog rock. Uh, it was the psychedelic scene. We all know about it. It was the hippie scene, the Woodstock scene. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? The Grateful Star- Dead, yep. Jimi Hendrix, yep, early Santana, Joplin, Jefferson Airplane, all sorts of shit like that, which is great. Right. I mean, absolutely phenomenal bands. I love them a lot. Uh, but with progressive rock, you had budding artists that wanted something a little bit different. They loved the 10, 12-minute, 20-minute songs, mm-hmm. right? But they, they wanted to kind of stray away from the typical four-piece band. And I'm saying bassist, drummer, guitar player, and frontman. Yeah, that's when they added in the keyboards. And right. not only just the keyboards, but they, that's kind of when the Moog, Moog, however you want to say it, yeah. it's, it was coming, synthesizers were, were becoming the newest craze in, in the rock. Yeah, yeah. Precisely, and that's kind of what progressive... I mean, if you actually look at the word progressive itself, that's what progressive means. It means you're keeping up with things, keeping up with trends, keeping up with the times, being progressive, moving forward, right? Mm -hmm. So they wanted to take these these psychedelic bands' ideas of these heavily instrumental... Now, that's not to say that the progressive bands weren't very heavily instrumental. They were... That's all they were. (laughs) You know what I mean? Their, their, Their lyrics were... I mean, it was good, but it was more of a repetitious point. Like, if you can... If you listen to things like, uh, and we'll get into this a little bit more not later. Not all of the bands. Though. Not all of them. I'm talking, well, the proto-prog bands that yeah, came later yeah. were a little he- lyrically heavy, but I'm, I'm saying in the sense of like, go listen to Pink Floyd's metal. Yeah, yeah. You know, what is there, 12 words in the whole fucking album? <laughs> Pretty much, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Exactly. That's what I'm talking about. Shit like that. And, and Frank Zappa stuff. He was a heavily, a heavy lyricist, but it, 
it was just eclectic. It was different. There was, like you said, there was a fusion of synthesizers, folk music, flutes, you know, woodwind instruments, things mm-hmm. of that nature. Mm-hmm. They, they brought in the orchestrated inf- instruments. They kind of went back. They're like, okay, we like rock and roll. We've established we like rock and roll, but we want to go back to a little bit of the classical roots with the orchestrated instruments and more sound. Yeah. We want to yeah. do something more, bigger. Did you know Frank Zappa was born with a mustache? I guarantee he was. I guarantee he was. He probably came. He looks out. a little like Gallagher, doesn't he? <laughs> a, li- a little bit, man. That guy. That guy was probably one of the weirdest folks in rock and roll. Yeah, but yeah. but also one of the. Uh, well, you have to be eclectic to, to to get noticed, you know. Right. It was all about a new scene. Yeah. And that's some of what we what we talked about starting this show is like if you look throughout time, take a little segue for a second. If you look throughout time from the from the forties on to maybe. Maybe 99, 2000, right? Right. Every decade was something new. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Every decade was something like, holy shit, there's a flute in that band, and he's playing it real fast. Who are those guys? Jethro Tull? Yeah. And then, you know what I mean? There's, wow, Tool, these guys are fucking great, or mm-hmm. Korn, or, or, or Jimi Hendrix. But now, there's not, it's all been done. Yeah. And, and progressive rock kind of, to me, progressive rock kind of ties up all of the new things that could possibly come out. Because if you look now, like look at any sort of modern rock and roll you turn on on the radio, right? Baby metal? You know, don't even <laughs> fucking get me started on that godforsaken <laughs> fucking band. Did I tell you the story when I saw them? No. So another segue to the segway segue. Uh, I bought my, my best friend Gene and I, I bought us uh, very expensive front row seats to see Red Hot Chili Peppers here in Jacksonville. And... Uh, very expensive, so I was really excited to see them, naturally. Uh, we get there, and I, they didn't announce who their opener was. Mm. And I was like, okay. And so these, these little, tiny Japanese girls come on stage with some... Yeah, speaking really high... All this real <laughs> high-pitched shit. And they start... There's some real heavy riffs start coming on. And I was yeah. like, all right, cool, dude. Alice Cooper's about to come out and cut all these bitches' fucking heads off. <laughs> like, it's going to be fucking... Guar's going to come out with a giant fake dick and come them off stage. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, settle down, Beavis. Yeah. I was, <laughs> I was really fucking stoked. And so they kept playing... And all right, I was like, three minutes went by and nobody died. And I was like, all right, cool. Okay, this is a joke. Okay, These guys. Are, they're, they're serious. These chicks are serious. Okay, this, this is, my mouth's open and everything. Everything, my mouth's open. I'm like, all right, guys. Are they girls? They're girls, right? They're girls. Yes, I thought. And I was like, okay, we're done now. And they just kept playing and kept playing and kept playing. And I was like, yeah, and I was like, they had a song about chocolate. Give me the chocolate. All this bullshit. And I was sitting here with my drink. So basically, man, like, it's metal with K-pop. It's shit with poop smear filling. Ah, that is what it is. Means a lot. It's garbage with with hot white dog shit filling. But they got noticed because they're different. Yeah, that's precisely. The, that's the point. Right. Anyway, exactly. So they did bring that sort of difference to it. And any of you that that say that you like baby metal, I don't believe you. I, I don't believe you. I'm sorry. I'm just going to throw that out there. But uh, okay, all right. Anyway, so hey, onward. <laughs> yeah, onward to glory. So, like I said, if you turn on any uh, any radio station, listen to any sort of progressive, mu- well, any sort of music nowadays, you know, because the the plugging your six string into the amp or your bass or actually hitting a drum kit, it's all over. Yeah. Everything's done with software. Mm-hmm. Everything, like even the Dirty Heads, we went and saw them. Their entire show is software. You had a guy playing like a maybe a movable seventh chord on the guitar, and that was it. Yeah, yeah. It's all, but that's all progressive. That's all progressive rock. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have synth apps, you know, I prefer hardware. I prefer being able to tweak something, right. something that's solid. That's tangible. Not, you know, exactly. But tangible, but you, you have, uh, let's say in, our, in your hardware synth, you have maybe like 200 sounds where you yeah. have 4,000 sounds in your computer that you can right. go through. So um, every time I go on my computer and I try to play synth, I'm like, Holy God, there's I don't way, even know. There's, where do I start? There's, right. there's so many sounds. Like even the equipment we use, we could be doing so much more with this, but nope, I just want it for microphones. That's it. $200 <laughs> piece of equipment for two microphones. Ah, well, you know. you know. But anyway, so that's progressive rock. And it's probably, and there's probably a dozen people sitting there going, well, this fucking guy, he just doesn't get it. And that, that was, that's, that's the point of progressive rock. Yeah. You just don't get it. Yeah. Some people get it. Well, some people don't. It's like it's almost like a jam bands with Correct. keyboards, you know. Yeah, and they they had they had, when they record, especially when they record, they have like words like the stereophonics are going from the left speakers to the right speakers, or you hear one instrument in the in the right yeah. speaker of your car. While, Pink Floyd notorious while, for that. Yeah, you have all this like surround 3D type you know realism right. in their music, right? Which, which makes it pretty cool to listen to. Yeah, you know, it doesn't. You don't get bored with just listening to the. To the soloing yeah. and stuff like that. It's, and that's what they wanted to step away from. Yeah. And and on those same lines, dude, Rick Wright, the keyboardist for for Floyd. Yeah. How you know, and drummer, how amazing was that that he came up with those sounds back in the sixties? Oh yeah. And they're still relevant today. Absolutely, because you gotta think, there's like we just talked about, there's software on software on software on software that can make, you know, these crazy sounds that Floyd was doing in the sixties in minutes. Right. Minutes, right? He had to build his own and, and I'm not just oh, I'm just saying GarageBand, for yeah. example, is free to all to all and it's got Rick Wright's sound right in there in one of the synths. Absolutely. Like you just Turn it on right now and start playing, you know. That's what I mean. It's crazy. Rick Wright's, you know. But back then, it took him weeks, months to make the instruments, oh, yeah. to find the sound. To oh, yeah. He was just probably sitting there in the middle of a room all coked out like, oh, you know what I mean? This new Moog synthesizer, what do I do with this? What do I do with this? He's all of a sudden Beethoven. <laughs> what do I do with this? <laughs> but anyway, so yeah, I probably just don't get it personally. I wish I did. Uh, but let's let's go back to back then. Um, so, like we said, in the '60s, uh, they're they're coming out with these these weird albums, and I think arguably, uh, probably the first glimpse that we saw at progressive music was Beatles' Sgt. Pepper's. Oh yeah. yeah, I think so. And just as a band, progressing from what they started as to what they finished as, that's progression right there. Oh yeah, I mean it's like. Cocoon butterfly, you know. Yeah, you know. Yeah, I mean, they they came out. I think uh, I think Sgt. Pepper's came out in '67. Um, that that was a very eclectic album. That was a very crazy album. It, it kind of it was the turning point when the Beatles started going away from the doo wop. You know, oh, yeah. type they rock started stuff. taking drugs. Yeah, exactly. They found <laughs> drugs, and so they started getting real fucking weird. And and yeah. people didn't know how to accept it at the time because they knew the Beatles for what they were. They knew music for what it was, and all of a sudden, Sgt. Pepper's, you know that that hits, and they're like, I don't know what the fuck to do with this. A little piece of information on uh, uh, Pink Floyd had a show at the Alexandra Palace in 1967. It was Ooh. their uh, legendary 14-hour Technicolor Dream concert good god and it's still available on dvd today if only anybody remembered going to that the, the well the, the <laughs> why, why i brought it up is because yoko ono was there performing an art installation and then you can also see john lennon captured going through the crowd and they had they didn't even meet each other yet really and this it's pig floyd you know concert wow concert dvd mm. footage pretty cool that's very radical yeah no. 
So Frank Zappa. Frank Zappa, right? Uh, yep. In the Mothers of Invention. Um, so he, he comes out on the scene in the mid-60s. Uh, I believe his first album, I think, I think Freak Out came out in 66, I want to say. Oh, Freak Out! Not quite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not quite. Yeah, it did. It did came out in 66. Um, he had a studio orchestra. He had what, what electronic, you know, stuff was available to him at the time. Yeah. Uh, Mellotrons and Moe. Super and, Mellotron. And, yeah. And it's very, it was, it was very funny music. And he's also said to be the, um, you know, the godfather of com- a comedy rock. Yeah. So, you know. Yeah. Weird Al Yankovic's predecessor, That's 100%. Definitely, yeah. Yeah, so Weird Al Yankovic was almost 100% solely based on Frank Zappa. Yeah. You know what I mean? I totally agree with that. And that's exactly how Zappa was. He was funny. He was eclectic. He 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 kind of combined the psychedelia and the weirdness of rock and roll at the time and made it fucking weirder through the use of progressive technology and different sounds. Mm. That's what he did. That's a lot to... Lots of process, yeah, like sure. progressive rock. It's a lot to process. <laughs> yeah. Um. So, so wait, wait. So you're telling me you think that he's the Godfather? I think, not Floyd. No, I don't. I don't think it was Floyd because I don't think they knew about each other yet. Okay. I don't think Floyd was big enough because you got to remember Frank Zappa was an American artist. Okay. Pink Floyd was just budding in Britain in the mid to early 60s. It makes, okay. With the Sid Barrett years. So they didn't know each other yet. They weren't talking, and the world damn sure didn't know about any of them. Yeah. You know, even when Piper came out, came out Piper at the Gates of Dawn. Yeah. They, that was they one still of those, weren't that, out yet. That was one of those retrospective albums that people bought later on. Yeah, precisely. You know? Absolutely. They didn't even know. I don't even think people knew who Sid Barrett was till much later. Until yeah. they started looking into Pink Floyd a little bit. Right. You know what I mean? So, so yeah, I think, I, well, I'll revise my statement. I think Frank Zappa was the godfather of progressive rock in America. Hmm. Okay. You know, because, and I also think that folks like, uh, like we talked about last week with the Shock Rock episode, because Arthur Brown, guys like Arthur Brown, he was, he was a very progressive guy himself in his own right. He could, I think he could arguably fit into two, to both genres. Yeah, okay. I can see Shock that. Shock Rock and yeah. progressive rock, because he was doing, he was misunderstood. That, I don't th- I think that's why he didn't explode more on the scene. And I, th- I think Frank Zappa wasn't very large until much of his later stuff anyway, but because yeah. nobody understood it. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? Nobody was paying attention. To that. I don't, and it's like you were saying, with well, Pink I think Floyd, a lot of, a lot of the reason people listened to him was, was because of the comical aspect of, of how, how he, you know, portrayed himself absolutely. on stage and, and, and all his uh, lyrical stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, Frank Zappa was very heavily influenced by classical composers and obviously the greats like, um, you know, the blues greats, Howlin' Wolf and stuff like yeah. that, Willie Dixon, whatever. So he was, cause you had to be, if you, if you, Mark and I were just talking about this today, if you ever have picked up a six string guitar or listened to a song with a guitar in it, it was influenced by the blues. Yep. <laughs> you know what I mean? hundred percent. hundred percent. The blues was the basis of rock and roll. Mm-hmm. So he, obviously his stuff was the basis. Well, because you know. before, before that, Everybody was just playing like, you know, jazz, jazz and, and a big band, <laughs> right? Big yeah. band and jazz. That's it. You know, and, and right. And then classical, of course, before that. Right. Right. And so Frank Zappa, he was, he was also big into theater like Arthur Brown. He was very big into, into anything weird, any film, music, theatrics, plays, whatever it may have been. Um, and he actually, what went before he started off, he got into PAL studio and moved into it. And he was making all of these recordings, and he was approached by a uh, undercover officer who offered him a hundred dollars to make a 
an audio sex tape for a bachelor party. Because that's what they did. Back. Could you imagine that? How bizarre. How bizarre. How bizarre. <laughs> you, like you, they went and paid somebody to make an audio sex tape. For, and they just, could you imagine a bunch of dudes at a bachelor party just sitting around, huddled around a giant fucking whatever they were listening to, just fucking like, oh, dude, listen to her. She's getting plowed. Just listen, bro. Well, that's like what Guns N' Roses did that for free. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. Right. Exactly. So anyway, he paid him a hundred bucks and it was an undercover cop. And as soon as, uh, oh, was, shit. yeah, Zappa actually made a fake tape. Her, him and a, a friend of his. Oh, so yeah, just sat. So oh, he can still produce. Oh, yeah, it. you know what I mean. And then gave it to this guy, and he ended up spending ten days in jail and lost all of his shit. Seriously? Yeah, for dude. a fake tape, for a fake sex tape. That's, that's how crazy it was back then. Yeah, well, because you can't really prove it with video. You can be like, he didn't put his dick in there. But back you in know? those days, man, it was it was taboo, right? Um, so anyway, moving a little bit forward, Frank Zappa came out with Freak Out in 1966. If you guys get a chance to listen to it, it was a very it's a very funny album. Yeah. And the motherfucker's crazy, dude. Like, he came out with, I think, 60 total albums. Hmm. 60 <laughs> albums. And how many years was that spanning? Oh, 50? No, oh. 40. Was, you, know. you know. One, two albums a year. That's a lot, That's though. A lot. And it takes Leonard Cohen, like, six months to write, like, one verse of his Yeah, and it all song. sounds like the lowest note on a keyboard. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> it sounds like the weirdest shit you've ever fucking heard. Uh, so anyway, yeah. So that's Frank Zappa in a nutshell. Uh, he was a big vocal opponent of censorship. Um, he was very hard against the uh, the PMRC, which was Tipper Gore's organization to put the parental advisory stickers on albums. He was a, I think, I view him more as a political figure in yeah. a producer than a musician. Wow. I, I really do. Well, later on. Yeah, right. Because yeah. he did. He he uh, produced albums for Alice Cooper, you know, Grand Funk, Captain Beefheart. He did a lot. Yeah. He did a lot for people. Um, and so, I don't know. I think he was a pretty influential person. And if you go back to listen to any of his stuff and he, the he names of his kids. He was probably the life of the party backstage, too. You know? Com- I don't know. He was the comedian. Well, he was the comedian. You know? So. Yeah, he didn't do any drugs or drink. He was a teetotaler. Mm-hmm. You know? I mean, you, the guy's got a sense of humor, though. But, yeah, still. Even, right. even though he was straight edge, he was probably still pretty fucking funny. Probably. I mean, <laughs> yeah. look at the fucking names of his kids. Moon Unit, Diva, ah, Ahmet, and what? Dweezel? Dweezel. Fucking Dweezel. How'd you like to, like, actually, when you figure out that your name sucks? <laughs> you know what I mean? When you finally figure out your name sucks? I wonder what he was like. He was like, God damn it, Dad. Especially back in the 80s, you know, in the 70s, that's when the word dweeb was used a lot. Oh, dweeb yeah. and Dweezel go pretty, fucking pretty close. Dweebsel. <laughs> fucking dweebsel. So anyway, yeah, he was, I, I, I honestly think uh, between him, because this, the whole progressive rock scene in, in early on, that, it happened real quick. You know what I mean? So it's hard to say who was the godfather or godfatheress of it. You know what I mean? Because you had, uh, you know, Zappa in 66, Floyd. Okay. Well, so you got the European right. start, kind of the same time as the American start. Right. Because you had, you know, Zappa, like we talked about, American, and then Pink Floyd in 67. Right. With Piper. That was kind of the, the British starts. And they were playing. you got to think they were playing for years before this. So so the progressive rock era probably started in the early to mid-60s. So one of right? the, one of the uh, first singles that Pink Floyd had was a, was a single called Arnold Lane. Uh-huh. And it was based off of a real-life person that Roger Waters knew who used to steal women's clothes and underwear from clothing lines. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Do you want to fuck me? <laughs> I'd fuck me. <laughs> Isn't that crazy, though? Yeah, it's fucking crazy. 
And there's a B-side to the Arnold Lane um, that the Mars Volta covered mm, on Mars the Volta, Candy and Cur- Current Bun album. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was given; they gave it away free with their uh, with their album, and it was a vinyl disc. Have you ever heard of that? A vinyl disc, yeah. So it's a vinyl on one side and a CD on the other. Wait, no, I haven't heard of that. Right, I've heard of a vinyl. Mars Volta released Arnold Lane's B side. <laughs> How do you even do that on their the Bedlam and Goliath album? Mm-hmm. Uh, in in a vinyl disc, so how do you play that? So I guess I'm su- I'm assuming it's CD size, and then okay. you flip it over and it's got vinyl, and you can just throw it in your record player and play like one or two songs. But you can can you put it in your CD player? Yes, really? Yeah, I've never in my life. I want to. I, I mean, if I had a record player, I'd be looking into buying just just to see what. I mean, I have in. small like almost CD sized LPs. Well, those are different. Those are the fifty fives, right? Yeah, yeah, or forty fives, whatever mm-hmm. you call them. But no, this is an actual CD, and they were called vinyl CDs. Vinyl discs. That's the craziest thing. I know. Don't you want one now? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've heard of laser discs. <laughs> no, these are vinyl discs. I, I had never heard of it until, until recently either. Of course. And see, that's a fucking... Pro- I feel like hipster shit evolved from progressive rock. And now all the hipsters are going to go out and buy these vinyl discs. I got the biggest vinyl disc collection known. Yeah, guys. ever. Look, I have 800 of them. They can fit in the palm of my hand. My beard's the longest, baby. Yeah. Cracks IPA. Um, so anyway, you have all this shit happening. Frank Zappa's going on. You've got uh, Pink Floyd over there in Britain doing the Piper stuff. Sid Barrett's still with him, so the shit's weird. Uh, Saucer Full of Secrets, they're working on that. And also, hanging out over there in uh, Lancashire in 67 is a little band that you guys may know called Jethro Tull. Mm. Jethro Tull. Before we go into Jethro, I, mm. I have a little... Did you know that um, when... When Sid Barrett moved back in with his parents and started going insane and stuff, uh, David Gilmore helped him create two more albums. Really? One was called Barrett. The other one was called The Madcap Laughs. The Madcap Laughs. Have you you heard them? No. I want to listen to those. Don't you? I'm going to listen to those tonight after we're finished. I'm going to listen to those. Sick, man. Yeah. I bet you they are sick. I bet you they're weird. Yeah. I bet you they sound like Leonard Cohen Mentally albums. fucked. Yeah. <laughs> I bet you they sound like a Velvet Underground Leonard Cohen mix. <laughs> yeah, like know. if they had a little love child. I don't know. I'm going to check it out myself. Something weird fucking... Yeah, just definitely weird. Uh, so we'll talk about Jethro Tull because another another big influence on progressive rock and roll was folk music. Because you got to think... I think uh, in progressive rock, how they were doing it is they were just throwing, combining anything they could. Exactly. They Classical were just- music, jazz, whatever. Let's just see if it works. Yeah, fucking, yeah. Bang on that pot and pan over there. I'm going to play this pentatonic scale. We're going to see how it sounds. Yeah. Yeah, that was progressive rock. I'll start clapping and laughing. Yeah, clapping, laughing, and oh, look, money. There we go. (laughs) It's done. (laughs) Right. Exactly. (laughs) It's out. Uh, So Jethro Tull, they they started around 66, 67. Uh, They didn't start getting their commercial success until 69. Um, They they started off folky and bluesy. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, they had an album come out called Stand Up, and it reached number one in the UK. So that was pretty good. There was no flutes in the beginning. No. Oh. No, there was no flutes in the beginning. Uh, because Ian Anderson, uh, he couldn't play guitar as good. Okay. And so he bought a flute. Gotcha. He bought a flute, and he was like, I'm going to learn how to play this flute. Well, it's a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Because they probably wouldn't be... Half of what they were without it. Well, he started. He started playing. Um, he incor- they started incorporating the flute uh, after about. I think it was, he start, He had it for like two weeks, and they started incorporating the flute. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't take long for for a talented musician to pick up a new instrument. No, and and 
one of their later they they redid the 72 album thick as a brick they redid it i think it was in like 2010 or 2011 before they broke up and he is fucking going hard on that flute dude he's a flute master yeah yeah and i I was like i didn't think the flute could be so badass the only thing i really know of the flute is ron burgundy oh yaz flute my old band we i used to there's a flute on synth you know that that sounds just like jethro tall's flute I used to use the shit out of that that one sound. Yeah, sounds great with that's with, with, awesome. with rock music. You know? Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so they did the normal thing. They started playing as a uh, as a three piece in local clubs and clubs and venues and stuff. Then they started picking up a little bit of speed and back in and so progressive rock really started picking up speed. It was introduced in the mid to late sixties. Started picking up in '69 and early '70s. I'm talking '71, '72. Yeah, is when it really started going. You know, really picking up momentum and popularity yeah, within popular culture. Because in the very beginning, you know, obviously, because their, their lyrics are poetic, mm-hmm. they're, they're artistic-based, it's very artsy, it's very fartsy. So critics back then saw it as pompous, and that's how they described it, this pompous, strange music, you know what I mean, that yeah, we don't know what it is. They were all still listening to Sinatra. Right, exactly. This sounds pompous, this sounds arrogant, this sounds like shit, essentially, is what yeah. they were saying about it. Um, so in the early seventies, it kind of caught on, you know, after Floyd had been around for a little while and Zappa had been around for a little while. And then you had bands like Genesis that were playing stuff and yes, and rush and whatever. But, uh, Jethro Tull's album, uh, Aqualung dropped in 1971. And that's when their music style really started shifting heavily from a blues folky kind of sound. I would say like a folk tinged blues albums. Okay. That's when they started changing around to like, um, you know, to the more progressive sound. And they started also following around with the trends of the other big prog rock bands was concept albums. Mm. Concept albums were huge in progressive rock and roll. Yeah, because it was all experimental. Absolutely. Yeah. And so they would pick a subject, you know, druids or anything weird. Yeah. And they would go after that, like King Crimson with The Court of the Crimson King. He was, that was a whole concept album. Tell, an album that tells a story. So I don't know much about the King Crimson. They're great. They were a big, big player in progressive rock and roll. Um, but I'll get to them in a second. But Thick as a Brick, that was a great one. That was a 72 Jethro Tull album. Obviously, Aqualung, that was great. Fucking great album. A weird album, but a great one nonetheless. Yeah. Uh, but their 72 album, Thick as a Brick, which they redid in, like I said, 2010, 2011, that's a fucking really good album. Yeah. That's a really, really put together, well-produced, fantastic album. That, one of my favorites. If not my favorite. It is my favorite by them. By Jethro Tull. That's, a, that's my favorite Jethro Tull album. Enough said. Enough said. Enough said. The king has spoken. Uh, so let's talk about Pink Floyd a little bit. Let's talk about Pink Floyd a little bit. We, we have a whole Pink Floyd episode if you guys want to go back and listen to him. But, I, but we're, we're dancing around the subject because they were kind of the big catalyst that brought psychedelic rock into progressive. Yes. Yeah, so right? Well, they all meet at, they met at uh, school when they were younger. Yeah. Well, I think Roger Waters and Nick Mason... And Gilmore went to school together. Yeah. 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 And then and uh, Gilmore came later, obviously, after the, the great Super yeah, yeah. practice melon. But he still, they all still knew each other. I mean, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, I don't have much to talk about as their beginnings. I mean, because, you know, I just. Well, we hit on them. Yeah, uh, we, we did. We hit on them. And like we said, we have a whole, we have a whole um, episode based on them. So if you listen to their early stuff before they started getting commercial, um, you have the Piper of the Gates of Dawn in 67 and a saucer full of secrets that dropped in 68. Um, very, that, that was that very heavy, progressive, eclectic sound. That was more experimental progressive. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Uh, they started really, really getting 
finding their touch in after Barrett left, and they mm-hmm. recorded a soundtrack. Their third studio album was actually a soundtrack for a um, for a film called More, and it was called More. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was a concept album, okay, right? Because it was it was the first time we had started seeing you know an entire album telling one story. Yeah. And you started seeing the six-minute songs because that's another thing that's very indicative of progressive rock and roll. Long songs. Long, long, long songs. Sometimes taking up a whole album. Yeah. Sometimes like, taking up a whole side. You just, you, you're driving down the road on a car trip. You throw a progressive rock album on, mm. and before you know it, you're there. That's it. <laughs> and only one fucking track change. <laughs> yeah, right. The whole fucking way. Yeah. <laughs> We're here, kids. We went to Florida, to California, and listened to one fucking album. Uh, so they so. they had more that and which also there was a song on that that I think was probably one of their heaviest songs because they were still semi experimenting at the time the Nile mm. that was a fucking great song um, yeah but like anyway that song too yeah so moving there like I, like we talked about they're heavy you know because then you had Umagama and then Adam Hart Mother drop sixty nine seventy but metal which is my personal favorite of all of Pink Floyd's albums. Uh, that was their their 1971 release, and that was the absolutely most heavy progressive rock album that Pink Floyd has ever produced. Wow, I, I absolutely, dude. I mean, that's that's the first time you saw, you know, because Echoes that was a that was a whole side that was that was a 23 minute song, mm-hmm. the entire side two of the entire album. Well, the Adam Hart Mother album, you know, that was inspired. By uh, a newspaper headline about a woman being fitted for the uh, first ever atomic pacemaker concept that's, album, concept album, right there, concept album, right. Yeah. So that's what they would do. They would pick something and dedicate the album to it. Mm-hmm. The Mars Volta did it with their entire discography. Right. The entire thing was a like a, all of their albums are concept albums. Um, but yeah, so metal um, dropped in seventy one. That was my absolute favorite Pink Floyd album of all time. And if you guys get a chance to listen to it, list just pop it on side two first. Echoes mm. that'll set the pace to your entire. Day. That's a long song. Oh, it's a great song. <laughs> it's a great fucking song though. Uh, but anyway, so let's talk about. Well, did, wait before we get off of Floyd. It was a, we're leaving Floyd Land already. Ooh, mm. uh, but uh, Dark Side of the Moon. Mark's a big Floyd fan. Dark side of the moon. <laughs> People say it coordinates with the uh, Al, or not the, Alice in Wonderland, Wizard of Oz. Wizard of Oz, right? So Nick Mason was was asked about this once, <laughs> and he said that, "Oh no, no, we we thought it was going to be coordinated with the sound of music. So that's what that's what we intended." Well, you done wrong, John. <laughs> yeah. You done wrong. And then there's another interesting fact um, on the uh, the two businessmen that are shaking hands and, and they wish you were here album cover yeah that was actually not like a special effect the one dude was actually put on fire for that shot wow and it was windy and his you could see his mustache kind of blowing off his face his fake mustache was blowing off catching yeah. on, catching on fire that that album has a lot of cool little quips to it yeah um you know that that album actually has another one of my favorite songs on it have a cigar yeah um because i think cor- correct me anybody if i'm wrong on facebook that's l- uh, watching right now fuck me if i'm wrong yeah, correct me if I'm wrong. Fuck me if I'm uh, wrong. But I, th- <laughs> but I think "Wish You Were Here" was the first album that they came to America to produce. Yeah. Um. And so, in the the song "Have a Cigar," if you listen to the beginning of it, it's, "Come on in, boys, have a cigar. You're gonna go far." That was about their meeting with the record producer. Yeah. You know, he lit a cigar, offered him a cigar. This pompous, big, fat man behind his chair. You know, in his glasses. <laughs> oh yeah, that's, totally, like, that's totally on like, in, boys. That's how I picture that song too. Yeah, for e- sure, exactly. So they, they, a lot of their stuff is concept related. You know, you've got the wall with, about 
Roger Waters' father who died in World War II that he never yeah. met. Yeah. And then you have, obviously, Pink Floyd's uh, Dark Side album. Yeah, of course. Uh, yeah, that One was... One of the best-selling albums of all time. Yeah, it was on the top-selling record list for like 742 See, weeks or something. See, but Roger Waters wanted to, didn't want the space rock like spacey type rock yeah. uh, reputation but that's their sound <laughs> you know tell me about it tell me about it so like well, that's St- why he doesn't St- play with the Stanley other Stanley Kubrick anymore. asked him on numerous occasions if Floyd would do soundtracks for his movies and he said no but then he said later on that he, he regrets not saying yes at the I'm time I'm sure he does <laughs> you know because now he ain't shit but back to space uh, the Russian astronauts were the first ones to take a Pink Floyd album or any album into space and play the entire album so delicate sound of thunder none thunder was was the uh, supposedly (laughs) the first album played in in space delicate sounds of thunder yeah oh yeah that's they wouldn't have picked like dark side of the moon they they picked delicate (laughs) sound of thunder isn't that strange i thought that was strange Mm. Mm. so and that's funny you should say that too that they they wanted to they didn't want to switch their sounds because a lot of the bands that began as progressive yeah. shifted their sounds yeah like uh genesis for instance genesis you know we're talking peter gabriel and phil collins when they mm-hmm. first started in the the mid 60s uh, their first first album from genesis to revelation that was a very progressive album yeah and they had a very progressive sound and then then by 86 they were doing puppets on mtv oh my god well then they became <laughs> they became a pop band you know peter gabriel split and phil yeah. collins took over yeah and, uh, you know, that's not to knock Peter Gabriel. He was a very successful solo musician. He had as a pop well, career. As well as Phil. And Phil was as well. You know, In the Air Tonight, that was a pretty progressive song. And Phil's daughter's getting pretty successful. What's her name? I don't know, but I've, I've heard she's doing a bunch of stuff Is these she? days. Yeah, I don't know her name. Huh. Well, hopefully she keeps on with his weird shit that he likes to do. I, I don't know. I always liked Phil Collins. I oh, thought yeah, he was I a great musician. Gabriel as well. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And uh, so we, let's talk a little bit about Yes. That was a, that was a very progressive album, or a very progressive uh, band as well, in, an, in a whole, until they got poppy in the 80s like every fucking buddy else did. But well, yeah, the, the, that band had so many member changes, though. It, right. You know, and like they, they were big back in 1983 when they reformed. But, you know, they, they got together, I think, originally in, what was it, 1968? 68. Yeah. yeah. Formed, you know, John Anderson. But Owner of a Lonely Heart was their top-selling song yeah. of all time, that's unfortunately. Su- that's such a fucking poppy yeah. song, man. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, That's such a poppy song. But you know what I mean? I guess that's kind of progressive rock because progressive rock, you know, it always moves forward. Yeah. Oh, right? Yeah. But their self-titled album, uh, Yes, the self-titled album that dropped in 69. Yes. That was an... And he, yes. 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 <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uh, that, that was an incredibly progressive album. That was a great album. Uh, they didn't start picking up the really long song aspect of it. Uh, I think their longest song was like almost seven minutes. It was I See You, Side One. Um, mm. But it was still with, you know, John Anderson was lead. They still had their, you know, they obviously had their original, um, their original lineup. Um, but Tony Kay on the organ and the piano, he did a great job, man, because he, he brought that synthesized sound and that very you know, a live sound to the band. Right. That progressive tone. Well, they got noticed because they were, uh, they, Sly and the Family Stone was scheduled to perform Ooh, another at band. Blazy's Club in London yeah. um, in September of 
1960 whatever you said you said like you know eight the, yeah 69 68 yep. 69 and so they didn't show up mm. so yes was bad move yes was called in and that's how they got noticed well so. they did great for themselves um i listened to a lot of them in the past few days and i don't i don't know i think they're great yeah i mean and a great start before they you know i think everybody in the 80s progressive rock and roll kind of took a strange turn in the 80s you know what i mean yeah they took it took a strange turn because they were using the synth but that's kind of when the you know they were starting to make synth more synth based albums and and i don't know man it was just a weird i think pop started to take over really in the 80s from where progressive oh, rock yeah. left off because i think in the in like the mid to late 70s progressive kind of hit the back burner a little bit mm-hmm. and made room to like almost the uh the thrash metal the glam metal guys the heavy the more heavy stuff um, and then it kind of resurfaced in the pop organization. Yeah, it in the was early like 80s. W- whenever MTV hit the scene, it was like yeah. It was, well, it was the all 70s, about videos. The '70s sound was out the door. Out the door. Yeah, and it went kind of underground. And we went. We have a dozen thrash metal episodes. You guys can hear all about how the fucking late '70s and early '80s happened for the the big metalheads and things like that. Um, but another band that that you were big on and that I like a lot is Emerson Lake and Palmer. Yeah, they're another very stark example of very important. Uh, prog rock. Before we go to ELP, yeah. let's talk about one more thing about Yes. Okay. So they were on a 28-day tour with uh, Iron Butterfly. Yeah. And at the end of the tour, they, they purchased their public address system. Oh, that's great. The PA system. And that's what gave them their, their sound to continue on and, and ah. become a huge, huge success. I bet you I know who they bought it from. Iron Butterfly. No, the PA system. Yeah, Iron Mr. Butter- Leo Fender. No, they bought it from Iron Butterfly. Who bought it from Leo Fender, I guarantee you. Oh, man. I bet you. Crazy. Because Leo was the PA guy, <laughs> man. <laughs> <laughs> he was the sound guy, man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but it was reluctant for them to, to use the uh, Mellotrons and the Mini Moogs and all the new synthesizers. Yeah. So they, they were kind of, the keyboardist was against it. He just wanted to use keep using traditional piano sounds. But Broaden they, your minds, bro. That's exactly what happened. So moving on, yeah. yeah. Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. They oh, were, and uh, Iron Butterfly. I was just learning some of their songs last week. Didn't he like disappear? I hope so. No, he did. Like he, <laughs> like for real? Yeah, he just dis- he disappeared like in the seventies, and like no one ever saw him again. Where's he at? I think he resurfaced in like nineties something. Where? I don't know. This is what I'm 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 remembering. I bet he was in Uruguay. <laughs> yeah. Just because I wanted to say Uruguay. No, he was in Peru. <laughs> he was in Peru. Okay, ELP Emerson Lake Palmer. Go. They are an English progressive supergroup. Damn right they are. Mm. Mainly. Because of Lake. Mr. Greg Lake. Greg Lake. What about Mr. Greg Lake? He was in a band called King Crimson. Ooh, another one of my favorites. King Crimson. They have had an estimated 48 million records sold in and around the world. ELP? ELP. Mm. Okay. Mm. All right. Sing to me. They, uh, they formed. They had a couple gigs, and they weren't getting noticed. Then they went to the... Uh, 1970 Isle of Wight Festival. Sure did. And they became an overnight success. Yeah, yes, they did. They did indeed. <laughs> and that was shortly after they formed because they formed over there in London in like 1970. They were very folky. Very folky guys. But that's also, that's the one that of the core things of progressive. Core. 
very you know folk stuff. Uh, that was one of that was Keith Emerson. That was his. He was into the composers and he was really into the folky stuff. And you can hear that in his you know because he was the one of the main song. He was the main songwriter. Right. Uh, he was also a film composer. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he incorporated all of that folky stuff with the theatrics of film. You notice in a trend here, guys, because a lot of these uh, progressive musicians they started off in film. Yeah. Even uh, Maynard James Keenan. From yeah. Tool, he oh, yeah. started off in the film industry. That's what he. That's what they did. Arthur Brown, he started off in theater in the film industry. So did Frank Zappa. Well, I don't think Maynard started off in film. It was, he he like studied it. Oh, he he went to college for it. Okay, yeah, he went to college for film. Is at least what I, I looked. I thought up he went to him. West Point. Well, he was in the army for six years and, and then, then got he, out and then started doing then he had his a, own thing. Then he had a pet store. Yeah, he, stu- he worked on pet stores and studied well, film. Well, we'll get to Tool in a little bit. Yeah, he worked on pet stores and, you know, look, was heavy into, heavily influenced by film. Um, and so, yeah, you got, you got Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. You got Keith Emerson. You've got Greg Lake and you got Carl Palmer. Yeah. Uh, big in the early 70s, big into the mid-70s, but not, I don't think they were, I think, I think they started falling off, like you said, in the 80s. The late 70s, early 80s is when they started kind of falling off. They had a, they had a few albums. Uh, Everybody forgets uh, Mitch Mitchell was in there, too, from the Jimi Hendrix experience. That's right, Mitch Mitchell. He was a drummer. Yeah. Um, but their their self titled album is absolutely fantastic. That dropped in seventy. That has probably their most famous song on it, "Lucky Man." Right. Ooh, what a lucky man he was. <laughs> yeah. Well, they wanted to have uh, Hendrix in there with them, and they were going to call themselves. People were speculating, "Help, help," because Hendrix, Emerson, like Palmer. Help! I need somebody help. Yeah. <laughs> Anybody help? So that never happened, <laughs> obviously. Yeah, obviously. There's that little. They, they, they had ditty other uh, in there. Triton was going to be the, one of their names. Uh, mm. Triumvirate. Very progressive. Seahorse and, was another, mm. but then they decided on the conceptual uh, Emerson Lake and, and progressive. How how quaint. Yeah. Uh, but you did men- mention uh, Greg Lake, and you did mention King Crimson. Let's so let's do a little plug about them real quick. Yeah. Uh, King Crimson, one of my favorite progressive rock bands and also one of the first bands uh that tool actually toured with was king and they opened up for king crimson and that was one of um maynard's biggest influences in rock and roll was king crimson um what was their single uh in the court of the crimson king what are you talking about? Crim- uh, yeah, I don't know much about him. Oh, oh, 21st Century Schizoid Man. Okay. Yeah, 21st Century Schizoid Man. That was actually track one on their debut album in the Court of the Crimson King. Oh. Okay. And, and their shit is, is very, very conceptual, very, a very concept album based because if you look at, uh, you know, in the Court of the Crimson King, what do you think that symbolizes? Satan. Yeah. You know what I mean? So the entire album was kind of a, you know, like a play on words with... You know, they weren't Satanists. Don't, don't get me wrong. They were definitely not no, Satanists. No. But they were very folky. Now, King Diamond. Yeah, King Diamond <laughs> now. That's a different story. The different king. King Diamond was a very... <laughs> the other very, king. Yeah, he was, he was the other king from down below. He didn't just sing about it. But, I thought uh, Elvis was the king. Yeah, well, he's all down right. below, too. Enough. Shitting his pants all over <laughs> fucking hell. But uh, so <laughs> sandwiches. That's right. It, right. So uh, King Crimson formed uh, another band in London. London, I think, holds the fucking prog rock scene, man. They hold the weird. They hold, You seeing ghosts in here, Mark? No, I'm just making sure the AC's on. 
My ass is stuck to the chair again. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a little bit steamy in here right now. Yeah, as we start picking up the heat with our conversation, shit starts getting real. It's a podcast here. slash sauna session here. Right, I'm going to start taking off my pants. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nobody wants that. Uh, so anyway, they were very influenced uh, with jazz, classical, like every one of them, or the other ones, very folky. Uh, but like I said, the 21st century schizoid man, that was probably the precedent for, you know, alternative rock and grunge later on because oh yeah king crimson like if you if you go back and look at any interview of uh you know lane staley or you know any of the big guys Candlebox, they're all any mentioning of them, them as, as influence right they're all mentioning king crimson because they were so eclectic but yet so put together I throughout need to start the entire, listening to some some songs by that. Oh, they're great, man! Especially their their first two albums, uh, like I mentioned, the court of the, in the court of the Crimson King in '69, and their next year album in 1970, in the wake of Poseidon. Those were two absolutely fan fucking tastic albums. King Crimson is hands down one of my favorites, and I also think one of the or if not the most influential musician that ever came out of the progressive rock era besides Pink Floyd. What? Yeah, besides Pink Floyd. Pink Floyd and King Crimson. I'll definitely check them out. You have to. You have to do it. So anyway, who who do we have I, next? I, I probably heard them. I just Oh, you, of course from, you have. I don't remember the names of the songs. Yeah, when you when you think 21st century schizoid man, of course the first thing that comes to mind is 21st, 21st century. century yeah, bad, re- boy. bad religion. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so we talked a little bit about uh, all well, those guys. Next is a band that everybody knows. They go by the name of Rush. Rush. Rush, yes, Getty Lee, Alex Lifeson, and Neil Peart. Michael, you picked a very bad time not to watch the Facebook Live because we're talking my our friend Misfit Mike Martinez. That is his absolute live and die band. Uh, well, I'm sure we could do an, an, you know, another episode about another him. Episode. Well, we're going to have him on the episode one of these days when he gets off his fucking ass. So these guys are Canadians, eh? Canadians, which is rare. You don't see a lot of Canadian rock the bands. The Great Wide North. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm sure they're there, but they just don't leave Canada. <laughs> I think uh, I think Rush was one of the only big famous bands, and there's, I guarantee you, six people on the other end of this microphone going, fuck you, dude. There was fucking the Great Geeses. They came out. <laughs> it's 68. You don't know the Great Geeses? Fuck you. Well, Rush has inspired tons and tons of musicians through the oh, absolutely. years. absolutely. To name a few, Cliff Burton from Metallica, oh, yeah. Iron Maiden, mm-hmm. Dream Theater, Primus, Rage Against the Machine, as well as Audio Slave, of course, from mm-hmm. Tim Comer Forward. Right. Um, and so they started getting their more experimental sound. Actually, they didn't start progressive. Uh, and when they formed, they formed in... The dude plays bass with his, and synth. Well, no, he plays, he plays the bass. Right, Getty. He sings. Yep. He's got three microphones in front of him. Yeah. And he plays the keyboards with his feet at the same time. Yeah. I mean... I would fall on my ass. If I, I mean, I could probably do it if I had oh. practice, but dude, that's a lot to that's take. A, very talented musician. Super talent. Very, very talented. But they started off horrible voice, but I think I, I think he has a I great mean, voice. He's got one of the best metal voices, according to Rolling Stone, of all time. Oh, yeah. Great octaves. To me, it's a cheese grater on my ear. You think so? I'm, that's just me. Well, that's Musically, good. I love them. You're entitled Vocally, to Vocally, I, th- I thought, you know how many times I thought I was a woman singing when I was a kid? I swear to God, I found out it was, it was a guy singing. I was like, are you kidding me? That's a guy? <laughs> really? No. No. He kind of looks like a, Getty Lee kind of looks like a, uh, like a very plain Jane kind of woman with little glasses on. 
Yeah. Kind of a little bit. Yeah. Uh, so they started getting picking up their more progressive sound later on because they, they were around in the, in the mid to late 60s as well. Uh, but they started off with more influence of like Blue Cheer, Deep Purple, and, and Sabbath because they were, they were a little bit harder and more bluesy. In the, when they first began, they started picking up their progressive periods around 77, and they continued that into the 80s. Makes sense. You know? And so, uh, yeah. And they also started picking up a lot of their progressive and eclectic sounds when Neil Peart replaced uh, John Rutsey in 74. Yeah. So that's when they really started picking it up. You know, even Lee, Getty Lee said in an interview that um, they, they discovered a more progressive rock sound and where the direction they wanted to take their band from bands like Yes and King Crimson. Yeah. You know and when I mean? they started, too, uh, Getty Lee said that they were more of like a weekend warrior band. Like, they had all their day jobs. They would just do the gigs on the weekends. Right. You know, they would play, like, you know, some stupid concert hall in their local town in Canada. In their local town in Canada? In Canada. Canada, eh? But, uh, so, yeah. And also, let's not sleep on Alex Lifeson either, because he, he, he had a very classical base to him. So, you had all these, yeah. guy, all these guys in there that all had very different... Uh, they all had very different sounds to him, and he had he played a lot of twelve strings, so that's a lot of different sounds as well, mm-hmm. and a lot of more enhanced sounds. And he, but he played in a classical style that was very indicative of progressive rock. Mainly, he's famous for his Gibson Les Paul. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, Gibson has like three different types of uh, Alex Lifeson models. Do they really? Oh yeah. Of course they do. They probably all sound the same. You've never seen the Trailer Park Boys when. They took Alex, Alex yeah, that's right. to the Gibson factory. That's right. <laughs> they, wanted to, they sold all the Gibson guitars. That's, <laughs> that's right. But like I said, I think, uh, I think they're, they're one of their biggest diverse instruments they have in the group is obviously Neil Peart, their drummer, arguably the best drummer that's ever lived. Yeah, they're called, they call the power trio because right. each one of them is just powerhouses. And that's another thing. That's crazy that that much sounds comes out of three guys. That's what I'm saying. Because Lee does like... Four yeah. things. It's, look at Neil Peart's drum set. It's bigger than my living room. Yeah. I mean, you know what I mean? The guy's like, an amazing drummer. Yeah, he's crazy. He's got all like the glockenspiels, the wood blocks, the cowbells, yep. the gongs, chimes, everything, triangles, oh, yeah. whatever. You know, six different kinds of snare drums with different tautness on hey, the. If I didn't have to carry it around to each venue and have somebody to set it up for me, why not? I would hate to be his drum tech. <laughs> right. And, oh, I have to tune before each show. Oh, my I have to get there fuck. six hours before sound check. Yeah, and he'd come over there and fucking fart six inches away from his tenor and be like, nope, that's wrong. Fix it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, because that guy's just an absolute percussion Nazi. He's my a master. My triangle is not hitting correctly. It's not hitting tune correctly, it. and I can smell it. From the next city block. I smell the sound waves coming off that fucking splash. Fix it. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, so let's let's move a little bit. Rush, obviously very influential. Powerhouse trio band. Absolutely amazing. Let's talk about a little bit more modern stuff. Let's talk about Tool. Yeah, let's go for it, man. Let's talk about Tool. So those guys, when did they come to form? What was the, the uh, 90s, 1990. That's, that's when they started forming. Uh, they... Their original lineup was, I think, uh, Danny Carey, Adam Jones, obviously Maynard, and Justin Chancellor, who was uh, who replaced the original uh, bass player in '95, um, Paul D'Amour. Because so Paul D'Amour was with them with the Opiate EP uh, that was released in '92, and he was also with them for Undertow, which arguably is my my Wonder Years. Um, yeah. For them, I love their early stuff, man. I, I obviously I, I love, love Opiate. Opiate's great. That was a great EP. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely fantastic. That was, that was probably my favorite, still is my favorite Tool album. Yeah. You know, 
It's a good one. I have that one. That's I have that one and Undertow. Did you know about something called the Holy Gift? No. Okay, so the Holy Gift is a different way to listen to their album Lateralis. Okay. Okay. Is this the number thing? No, this is not the number thing. Oh, okay. Well, this, this, this is an order of tracks. Oh. So if you can, if you listen to the, you know, you have the, the, the one through 13 mm-hmm. normal tracks, but if, right. but if, if, but this is the Holy Gift. So mm-hmm. if you, if you play uh, Parabol, which is number six, mm-hmm. followed by number seven, followed okay. by number five, okay. number eight, and then it keeps going down, blah, 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 blah. You know, you can look it up if you want to look it up, but supposedly that has to do with the, the, the like I said, the number sequence a little bit. Yeah. But these songs will lead into each other just as well as the original track formation. Really? And that's called the Holy Gift. It's one of those weird Pink Floyd, uh, Wizard of Oz kind of weird transitional I things. I think it was done intentionally, though. You think so? Of course. Well, it seems like that, that's I mean, they, something they, they would they do. They do a lot of stuff like with with numbers and stuff. Yeah, what was that? What's that called? The thing that they do with the numbers? The Fibonacci. The Fibonacci Fibonacci theory. sequence. Yeah, Fibonacci sequence. Yeah. I, I, Maynard obviously was like, no way, but that's some weird fucking but, shit he would do. How about uh, Adam Jones and Tom Morello went to the same high school? Well, they also, that's how, um, that's how Maynard and uh, Jones met. Yeah. Because Maynard was friends with Morello as well. Yeah. And they met through mutual friend Tom Morello. That's crazy, right? That is crazy. The so, king of the wall. And Adam Jones did so many, like he went to school for special effects makeup. Yeah. And he does so many movies, man. Yeah. He, did, he did Men in Black, Jurassic Park, yeah. Terminator 2. How, how crazy is that? And then, of course, he brought all his special mm-hmm. effects work into the videos. And you can see a lot of that in Undertow. Tool, and that's another reason why Tool blew up, because oh, their videos yeah. were so like, oh, my God, did you see the new Tool? Video? Well, they wouldn't even play that shit for a long time. Yeah. Like the Stink Fist and uh, or, uh, Sober video. The, yeah. the claymation sequence videos, they wouldn't even play those for a long time because they couldn't understand it. Yeah. They start off being, every, everything in the music industry that they don't understand, they start off being afraid of it. Right. Uh, and so they did. Uh, so like I said, uh, you know, Tool, they formed together um, in 1990. They start playing. They get signed by Zoo Entertainment in March of 1992. Uh, their first video, Hush, was, I don't know if you've ever seen that. You ever seen that video? Where they're wearing the uh, I know parental the advisory stickers. No, I've never seen Yeah, that. it's a weird-ass fucking video. They're all wearing their parental advisory stickers and covering their junk with tape over their mouths and shit. Um, and so we're talking about Opiate. Um, I think their claim to fame was their original EP, Opiate, that we talked about, came out in 1992 See, with Sober on it. But then their first studio album... Undertow? It was Undertow. Yeah. But they had already dropped an album entitled 72826 in 91. Did so they? That, that's predecessing opiate now was that just like this a secret al- ep that only 800 copies were made or something the album was released in limited quantities of only 1500 and ah. sold through the mail for five dollars there it is yeah yep there it Old is mail order order uh tool album that's it they were in the back of some weird so magazine guitar player magazine. if anybody can get their hands on one of those those are probably worth mint right yeah and so those so that i didn't know about that one yeah. So that came out, and so at this point, they've got that. They've got the OPADP in 92. They've got Undertow in 93. Okay. So Sober, that video Sober that came right. out in that song for right. the opiate That's years, where they, they blew up. They, right. And that was in 94. And that's when they started, you know, Best New Artist. That's when they started getting noticed. They'd already been out for a couple of years. Yeah. But I th- saw them on the second stage at Lollapalooza, like, in 91. Really? Yeah. That's cool. That was cool. That is cool. That's back when they were real raw. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So oh, yeah. I saw them in 08. No, 2010, I think, in Hawaii. Yeah. And then we saw them again last year 
at the Welcome to Rockville Festival. Yeah. I yeah. saw him 10 years apart. Yeah, I saw 10 years ago in Jacksonville right. when they were on that last tour. The lasers right. were amazing on that tour. Oh, yeah. Dude, it was incredible. Yeah. And so they uh, they followed up the, the sober years with prison sex, uh, which also became a huge target of censorship for obvious reasons. Right. Um, and then, you know, a few short years later, in 96, they released their second full-length studio album, Anima. Yeah. A anima or anima or however you want to say that. Anemia. Anemia, whatever. Fucking retroconemia, whatever. Um, And so this is when they kind of started their, like, I'm going to slow down and not make a bunch of music (laughs) years. You know what I mean? They were like, "Um, we're going to wait, like, a long time. Yeah. You know, because after after anima came out in 96, they waited, I think, five years till 2001. Well, they, lateralis they had out. money, you know? Oh, yeah. And you got to think about it. Adam Jones was out doing movies. Well, and Maynard was going off and splitting in his projects, too. He was he started uh, Perfect Circle, I think, in 2000 or 1999. He started yep. working on it. And then, he, you know, later on, he started Pussifer. Yeah. You know, which is that's my favorite of all his. And then he started his projects. winery, which took up a lot of his time. Right. Um, and so and then also uh, he started uh, like um, guitar tech. Uh, Billy Hardell started playing with. Keenan in Perfect Circle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Adam Jones also doing his film stuff. He also joined uh, Buzz Osborne from the Melvins mm-hmm. and started doing some music with them. And then, you know, Carrie drummed with the, Jed, uh, the Dead Kennedy. So they all kind of split off. But th- that's the cool thing about Tool. They piss me off, but I love them. They always come back together because they have a, they have a dedicated fan base. Right. They're almost like the commercial underground. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, 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 it's beautiful. Yeah, I hate. I love to hate him. Yeah, because he's a fucking genius. Oh, amazing! Yeah, in modern day, I think between him and a band that we'll talk about in a but minute, he's a douche at the same time. Oh god, damn him! <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah. what I mean? At the yeah. same time, I'm like, I fucking love you, but I also want to smash your face with a golf club, <laughs> right. you motherfucker! You know. But anyway, so uh, again, in 2001, they toured with their with Maynard's longtime influence band, King Crimson, on a select ten dates. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was that's pretty fucking cool. And then yeah. obviously we've talked about we've beat this horse into the ground. Yeah. Ten Thousand Days came out in 06. That can't, that had Vicarious and the Pot. That was a very very good album, which came out five you know years where apart. The, that that title Ten Thousand Days came from? Uh uh-uh. uh Because um, Keenan's mom Judith had a rare condition called aneurysm, uh-huh. and it actually made her paralyzed for ten thousand days. Wow, that's where that came from. Yeah, is she not paralyzed anymore? No, she died. Oh, in two thousand three, complications from the condition. Damn. Yeah, crazy. And that then sucks. so uh, ten thousand days and wings for Marie were in her remem- remembrance. Oh, yeah, that's cool. A lot yeah. of concept stuff with Maynard too. Yeah, a lot of a lot of big influences with him. Um, if you guys, uh, I, I guess from what I've I've talked to people that are Tool fans. Um, or even proto tool fans, they don't know about his third. They obviously know about the Perfect Circle, but they don't know about his third project, Pussifer. Um, and that's my wife Kristen's favorite band of all time. And she actually showed them to me years ago. Uh, fucking great. There's a couple songs I like a lot from them. There's a couple songs. Yeah, they're they're fucking great. Yeah. So if you guys get a chance and you don't know who Pussifer is, go find out who Pussifer is. Yeah, a bunch you're of Pussifers. You. Yeah, you're welcome. Uh, is there any other bands you want to talk about? Because I only got one. I got one well, more. I, I do have another band we can talk about. Sure. What's yours? Mars Volta. Oh, okay. One of my favorites. Mine of all was time. gonna be uh, the Dream Theater. Ah, yes, Dream Theater. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about Mars Volta. That was probably the most modern of the 
uh, traditional. They they kept along with the traditional progressive rock roots. The the long songs, the concept albums, the eclectic technology based progressive sound. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were they were great, and they sung a lot in Spanish because they're obviously they're from in uh, they're from El Paso. Um, so Mars Volta, they're a little they're a progressive rock band from El, Fa- El Paso. They formed in two thousand one. Uh, I'm not going to let you know all of the uh, the original lineup because I can't really pronounce all their names. But Omar Rodriguez on guitar, Cedric Bixler on vocals, uh, Juan Alderot on bass. Uh, so on and so forth. So they had they had a five piece band. And they, Juan Valdez on bass. Yeah, Juan Valdez. Wasn't he collecting all those coffee beans with his trusty donkey <laughs> yeah. in the mountains of Peru? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you also might know the predecessor to the Mars Volta at the drive-in. That's where they uh, came from. You might know. I like them. They're good. They're good. Both of them are good. Yeah. Um, so they they started breaking up and getting back together consistently because of drugs. Drugs was the main cause. Uh, Drugs and rock? Never heard of that. Never heard of that. But the remaining members, they also, of the previous At The Drive-In band, they um, formed a band called Sparta. Have you ever heard of Sparta? They're pretty good. They're okay. Um, So I want to listen, or I want to list three of their most influential albums to me. Their first one being their Deloused in the Comatorium album in 2003. Uh that was amazing. That whole album was a concept album. It was based on a first-person story of someone in a drug-induced coma battling the evil side of his psyche uh, in the years after his drug-induced coma. So that's pretty cool. and Dope. Yeah, it's pretty crazy, right? And it was also based on one of their friends, Julio Venegas. He was a, an El Paso, a, a pretty well-known El Paso poet and artist that went into a coma. That's the one they wrote it about. And after he came out of it, he committed suicide by jump, jumping over an overpass into Interstate 10 during rush hour traffic. Oh, that yeah. would be a horrible death. Mm. <laughs> yeah. He and they also, have. during the recording sessions, they played with Flea. He had to have been on some kind of multiple drugs. Yeah, to do yeah. This, something like that. Yeah, so yeah. when they recorded this album, they actually recorded it with Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers. He, yeah. Pl- yeah, he played bass on nine of the ten songs on the Flea album. Flea just got married. Did he? He did. To a flagpole? Or what, to something weird? To some girl. Wow, a girl. A girl. It was a female? It was, it was a, a human. A I should human. say not just a female. It was he, a human he being? He also has a biography that just came out, supposedly a really good book. And they don't get to talk about the chili peppers, supposedly, until page 285. Like they don't get to as in like that was a stipulation of the novel? As, as in he had a really fucked up childhood. He was like, he grew up in West Hollywood. Nobody wow. cared about him. Did drugs at a very young age. Wow. I mean, I, I kind of want to read it. Yeah. That's no all doubt. I know about the book so far, but. Yeah. No doubt. That's wild. Yeah. God, all these fucking progressive rock bands and their crazy shit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but real quick, the other two albums from Mars Volta that I wanted to mention is uh, their 2005 album, Francis the Mute. That is an absolutely fantastic concept. It's, a, it's about a diary that had been found in a repossessed car uh, from their sound technician. Uh, it was unknown, but it was about a, a female that was searching for their birth parents. And they suffered mental illness and all this kind of crazy shit. So they wrote Francis the Mute, obviously, because her name was Francis. And she was mute because they, she left her diary behind. Inspiration. Uh, yep. And then La Via La Vuasquez, Viaquez. Um, mm-hmm. I, think, I think that was probably their most influential single on that album. Uh, it was a 12-minute song. So they're keeping along with the progressive, you know tempo of things and then the last thing uh their their 2006 album and protecture that was one of my favorite ones and uh 
John Frusciante from the original guitar player from Red Hot Chili Peppers played with them for about off and on for about six years. And if you know anything about him, he's an amazing guitar player. He's a Fender fucking guru. He's he's awesome. If you ever get a chance, you don't know who John Frusciante is. Go check him out. Top twenty, top top ten, probably for me of all time. Easy, easy, easy. Anyway, so. Dream Theater. Dream Theater. Let's talk about them real quick, and then we'll finish it up. Formed in 85 with uh, John Petrucci, John Mayung, and Mike Portnoy. They performed under under the name Majesty for a long time Mm -hmm. before they ultimately became Dream Theater. They became Dream Theater because John's dad said, hey, you guys want a name for your band? I remember this old theater out in California. It was called the Dream Theater. And so they were like, wow, that's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. So they they were all college uh, Berkeley College kids yep. in, the, in the study of music. They all mm-hmm. dropped out to become Dream Theater. And Good choice. Uh, yeah, they have a lot of, a lot of uh, you know, a lot of progressive rock, progressive, yeah. progressive metal, I guess, that they would, they would yeah. be known for mostly. Yeah, their first album. I, I did enjoy their first album, When Dreams and Day Unite. That was a pretty good one. A couple years ago, they opened up for mm-hmm. Iron Maiden. Well, yeah. Yep. They just came out with a new album, too. They do a lot of uh, cover songs you know, throughout their, uh, mm-hmm. their, their, their career. Yeah. Um, they were good ones, man. Their new album's pretty decent, too. Distance Over Time. That dropped in, in this year. Uh, so that was decent. Yeah. Yeah. Not my favorite they're, band, they're, but they're progressive. They're notorious to have no opening act because they perform three hours plus. Fucking Trans-Siberian Orchestra with over an, here. With an, in, with an intermission. Like, yeah, I mean, you go to a Dream Theater concert. Go get your fucking popcorns. <laughs> and go yeah. get your sausages. And your Heinekens, don't and, forget. Yeah, don't forget your Rolling Rocks and your Heinies and come back and <laughs> listen to a uh, fucking progressive rape. Just so uh, Jordan Rudis, he's the keyboard player for uh, Dream Theater. And if you guys haven't uh, checked out uh, his apps, if you play the keyboard or if you play anything like on your iPad or something mm-hmm. like that, he's got a couple cool apps that you can, that he's got tons of sounds on, the, on these like, New Fang Dangled synth type apps that you New can get Fang Dangled. on the Apple, mm. on the old Apple uh, iPhone. Steve Jobs box. So, uh, and they're also known for doing like, you know, comical stuff, you know, during their performances. Like, yeah. at the end of certain songs, they'll do like Flight of the Bumblebee or Mary yeah. Had a Little Lamb or yeah. Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. They'll like incorporate that into their, into their uh, crazy, crazy soloing and Always great. Groovy. Live. They're yeah. definitely the, a live band that you want to see. I'd like to see them. Uh, I would love to see them again. But um, that's all I have pretty much about them. I can go on and on and on about them. Uh, they opened up for Judas Priest in 2011. That's kind of a weird matchup. It was a weird matchup. That's kind of a weird a weird kind of... <laughs> I don't know who thought that up, but I bet it was cool. They have a crazy uh, DVD called Score and Chaos in Motion. And uh, they are seen performing in an octagonal-shaped maze. Uh, they also have, like, where Jordan Roos uh, spontaneously turns into a Santa Claus and John Petrucci catches fire. And, Sick. Yeah, all kinds of crazy stuff on there. Love it. And then the band ends up battling monsters by shooting fireballs from guitars. And That's throwing, progressive Throwing for you. drumsticks and screaming. Yeah, progressive for you. Yeah. But anyway, so that wraps up the progressive rock years, the progressive rock era. Um, so basically, if you've ever heard a song, you're like, I, I'm pretty sure I like this, but I don't know yet. That's probably progressive rock. So you'll enjoy it. Uh, so I want to talk a little bit about uh, the contest that we are starting as of tonight. Uh, we have Rock Isn't Dead, It's Just Sleeping official podcast t-shirts that we have they're made. pretty sweet looking and they're pretty sweet i have pictures of them posted on the rock isn't dead it's just sleeping facebook page so what we're gonna do we're gonna hold a contest starting this week and it's gonna be for a week-long period 
Um, we don't know if we're going to record. We're going to announce the winners on the next episode on the live Facebook feed. Uh, I don't know if that it's going to be sometime latter half of next week. So we will announce that as the day goes on. So if you would like to enter the contest, a, if you share the show, we always post a link to the show, um, to our, to our podcast on our Facebook page, our Twitter page and our Instagram page, mm-hmm. obviously all titled rock isn't dead. It's just sleeping. Uh, so if you, for one entry, you share that onto your Facebook page. That's one entry. If you want two entries into the contest, you share it onto your Facebook page and leave us a comment on your listening platform, whether it be Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Apple. And that will be two entries. Obviously, two entries max per person. Can't be having 68 fucking entries. Uh, And so at the end of the week, when we tally them all up, we will record the week's episode and we will announce the winners or the winner and we will send you a t-shirt in your respective size. You're going to have to send it to, like, Antarctica. That's fine. If, it, if somebody's <laughs> listening to fucking Antarctica, God, good for what you. What else are they doing? They're listening to podcasts. Yeah, listening to us. Us fucking guys. <laughs> so we're going to start the contest as of right now. We will post the link to the show within 10 minutes of ending this podcast. Give it a share. Give us a review on your listening platform. We will tally up the votes, and we will announce the winner next week. If you have any show ideas or anything that you'd like to hear about, please email us at willywhitebread69 at gmail.com. And obviously, go over to the Facebook page and check out our daily On This Day in Rock History posts. Hmm. You'll be ultimately intrigued. I know it. Happy Halloween, Happy Halloween. Enjoy your holidays. We will see you next week. Bye.